CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Yes, we're recording at Ben's. And that was the Brown Line. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, March 18th is just moments away. But before we get into that, we got to thank the following unions once again for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace, Non-Aerosmith Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150 are sponsors, as well as our good friends, at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. Well, I said uh, we were going to have Tracy Bame from The Reader on, and we have her here. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Hi, Hi thank you for having me. Yes, indeed. You have an important message I want uh, you to deliver to our listeners about The Reader and where we're at uh, with the coronavirus situation. Uh, Maya talked a little bit about it yesterday. Uh, let's just keep this message going out. Tracy, you want people to know about the reader, about the show, our future, and all those good things. But before we do that, we had an election last night. Just to get your general thoughts. Tracy has been following Chicago politics for a long time as an editor and reporter. Uh, two big elections uh, that kind of get your like to get your thoughts on. Marie Newman running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District and Kim Fox for state's attorney. Uh, let's talk about Marie Newman first. What's your general thoughts about that election, Tracy? Well, first, the caveat for sure is that the reader, Chicago reader, is, is does not endorse. So these are my personal opinions. Um, I'm excited about both victories. Uh, Marie Newman came so close a couple of years ago. I know a lot of people that live in her district, um, Beverly and southwest of there, and also even in Bridgeport, because that district is certainly very weirdly drawn. Um, and I, I have been covering the Lipinskis uh, for decades. And they have always been so unbelievably of an aberration of the Democratic Party of Chicago in terms of progressive politics, in terms of the people they represent. And this is a new day for that district, um, which has been so really just the, every Lipinski that's ever held <laughs> office has been a horror for LGBTQ people, for choice issues, so many other issues that I care about personally. So I think it's wonderful. I think Newman, um, built really well off her last campaign. She learned a lot the first time around. Lucky for her, these, these races come around every two years. So her name recognition she was able to build on instead of having to reestablish that. So I'm really excited about that. Kim Fox, I've been a fan of since before she was first elected. Um, I did a sleep out for youth homelessness uh, a few years ago, and Kim Fox spoke in the frozen tundra um, where we were and so passionately about her own background and experiences and how they led her to the career she has today. So um, I was always concerned that this one issue that she may have made mistakes on, the Justice Smollett, would distort all the other work that she had put in in these last four years in changing huge systems that the systemic change that Kim Fox did in such a short period of time was really incredible. And when I saw people that were so passionately against her, I could tell, tell how shallow it was. All their analysis was all so shallow. None of them really cared about all the expungement work and all of the getting folks out of prisons and, and stopping recidivism rates, things like that. 
they only cared about this one case, which told me that I didn't care what their opinion was because they really didn't know what was going on in the state attorney's office. Yeah, I also uh, have a, a personal connection of sorts to the election. As you know, uh, Kim Fox came on the show about a week ago, and in the, in the course of the conversation, uh, she said the word bullshit. Uh, and next thing you know, Bill Conway's running commercials uh, uh, about it. And you talk about not endorsing anybody. Like people were t- saying to me, Tracy, hey, are you endorsing Bill Conway? <laughs> it's like, no, it's just <laughs> the back shot was the show's logo, you know? And so, no, I'm yeah. not. We don't, we don't, first of all, we don't endorse anybody, as Tracy pointed out. Yeah. But secondly, the last guy in the world I'd be endorsing is the son of the Carlisle Group you know, uh, operator. Yeah. So, uh, I guess that gave me yeah, double- Bill Conroy. Yeah. Bill Conroy is a perfect example of somebody who comes from out of the blue, who, uh, out of the red maybe. Um, and, <laughs> and never really had done anything on any significant level that was a public service that you were aware of. Like he said, all of a sudden he cared about all these issues. I even know some gay people that were supporting him. I'm like, I'm sorry. I've covered the gay community for 36 years. Never heard him associated with public with anything like marriage quality or anything like that. And so it was really a, a great example of um, if you if you want to run for office, spend your career doing public service in a way that has an impact in a public way, so that people know um, that you're not just there to get the you know the election, um, and the, and they know where they come from. And and I'll mention a couple other races. I was um, it, there was history made with the first openly transgender judge, uh, openly transgender elected official in Illinois, Jill Rose Quinn. There actually has been a prior transgender judge. She was just not out, and she has passed away. But this is the first open uh, transgender judge in Chicago, and really elected official in Illinois. And then I was sad to see Yoni Pizer lose her state rep on the north side. That was a huge battle between Pritzker and Lightfoot over that race. And I had covered Yoni Pizer in his work for Mike Quigley over the years, and I know he was very much about community service. Um, and it was sad for him. The district's going to be fine. The, you know, the, all the candidates up there were very progressive and are going to represent the district fine. But I wish uh, Yogi Pizer well because he definitely has served that district well. And I hope he uh, maybe goes, goes back to work for Mike quickly or does other kinds of public service. All right, Tracy, let's uh, shift gears and talk about the reader. As I said, Maya was on the show yesterday, uh, as she is every Tuesday. Uh, talking about the show, uh, excuse me, talking, well, she talks about politics in general, but uh, yesterday she gave a pitch for the reader in the age of the coronavirus, the, the threat that we're all facing. Why don't you go uh, into a little more detail? Sure. You know, the reader, we spent the last 18 months recovering from years of neglect of the reader um, by various owners. And we really were on an up curve. You know, we, we really had um, done some significant gains in cutting expenses and bringing in new revenues. And then all of a sudden, this hit, and 95% of our advertising dropped immediately and will be for the foreseeable future. And that's not just in print. That's also online, social media, our sponsorship of events. All of our revenue streams except one, and it's a small one, the grants we get, um, is is gone. Um, And it could be five weeks. It could be five months. Nobody really knows. And if it goes longer than five or six weeks, I know that a lot of our clients are going to go bankrupt, um, whether they're small businesses or uh, cultural institutions. They're not going to be able to sustain more than a few weeks. So the reader is in a desperate situation. Um, we're doing a few things. We started an online fundraiser, chicagoreader.com slash donate. You can give anywhere from a dollar on up. You can join it as a monthly, monthly member. There's lots of options. Every dollar counts. 
Um, we also are going to be doing a coloring book next week with some local illustrators. I've seen some of the artwork that's been submitted. It looks terrific. We'll have information on that next week, and we're going to split the proceeds with those artists. We're also going to try to do a joint fundraiser with other media. There are um, 60 members of what the Reader launched last year called the Chicago Independent Media Alliance. It's community and ethnic media in Chicago, small to large. And we've been working on some projects already together, which is great, because now we're going to jointly try to push the foundation world of Chicago to put some money into the game to save authentic community media, because we're going to lose some in this crisis if we don't. And then also maybe come together for a joint um, online fundraiser later in April. So the reader is obviously needs to save itself, but we cannot be the last media outlet standing in community media in Chicago. We need this whole ecosystem to thrive through this so that when we get to the other side, there's media outlets to cover this great cultural community of Chicago. Um, so look to ChicagoReader.com, follow our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're going to have a lot of ways you can support us directly, including through just straight-up donations, through buying merchandise. And um, next week, if we're not allowed to print a uh, full run, we're going to do a special run, and then you can always get the PDF download on our website. This is Listen, Tracy, I say this as a person who's been writing for the reader uh, for many years and who's been reading the reader even longer than that, going back to the 70s when I was just a kid at Evanston High School. Uh, the notion of Chicago without a reader is very upsetting to me, and I know there's a lot of people out there who feel the same way I do. Uh, not just old geezers like myself, Tracy, but even younger people who've come to love the reader. It's an alternative voice. You mentioned, and, and Maya was really uh, hitting home, uh, how important the reader is on cultural issues. Well, the reader has always always been a voice of like alternative views to Chicago politics. So, for instance, just the way... I'm just speaking now. The way, we, the, way the reader responds to, let's say, uh, Smollett Gate and the way mainstream newspapers respond is a little different. And it's just an alternative yep. voice. It's a different voice. It's a unique voice. It's a left of center voice generally, uh, although it's tolerant from time to time of people from right of center. So it just, as a longtime reader, reader and writer, uh, I'd like to encourage absolutely everybody out there to help us keep this thing going during these dire times. This is probably the most threatening moment in reader history, Tracy, even more threatening than 9-11. You, you're in the publishing business for a while yourself. This is more challenging than 9-11, don't you agree? Yeah, here's the thing. Um, you know, first of all, go to chicagoreader.com slash donate <clears throat> to give. But the difference now is we are in a man-made disaster by a mass murderer in the White House, is, is how I can only say it. Because this man's ego was so, and his lack of empathy was so in the way of solving this on the front end. We were lucky in the United States. We had a heads up. We had the ability to stop this in its tracks and do test, test, test. Tre te it was South Korea's plan was test, trace, and treat. And we did not do that. So even though we're all quarantined for two weeks, it's not going to help because we're not testing and we're not tracing and we're not treating. Um, so many people we know on Twitter and Facebook, they're saying that they have symptoms and nobody will test them because they didn't happen to have a direct link to somebody. When the fact is nobody, none of us know if we have a direct link to anybody because nobody's being tested here. So this is malpractice on a mass level. And to me, it's a war crime against his own people. And now he's going to take more money out of our pockets to line the corporations who, who, who three years ago were happy to take those tax cuts and put it in their own pockets and do stock buybacks do nothing to shore up their own companies for the long term. And yet they hold individual people are like, oh, you don't have two weeks savings? 
Well, why don't the airlines have two months savings? These are corporations that continually get a bailout at our expense, and they want to cut food stamps, and they don't want to do paid leave. They don't want to do all these other things that actually help people, just line the international pockets of these corporations. So this is an, an unbelievable threat to not just the reader and all community media, but to the whole culture that we have in Chicago and in this country because of the distorted practices of this White House and the Republican Party right now. All right, that is Tracy Bray. Man, we should bring you on more often. God, you are fired up. Absolutely. I'm, I'm fired up too. Tess, <laughs> Trace, and Treat. We're not doing it. Instead, they're lining the uh, the pockets of the corporations. You're absolutely correct. He's going to bail out the airline industry. And I know, listen, I feel for everybody in the airline industry that's. Oh, uh, no, and I'm not even opposed to some support, but then you know what? How, how about until they pay us back, we own percentage of that company? Just like for the auto dealers, the Obama deals, he got money back for the American public. We better get some money back from these companies when they're profitable. Until we get paid back with interest, and you know they charge us individuals interest, we need to charge those corporations interest, and then sure, then they can have 100% of their own ownership. But give us stock. Give American people stock in the companies that we're basically investing in. No free money. And even though the Chicago Reader's not allowed to make endorsements, based on what you're saying, I'm going to say this, Tracy. If there is not more oversight over Donald Trump, none of the things that you're advocating right there will happen. Oh, no, we need the Senate back and to keep the House. There are so many important things, and not just from the, you know, from the U.S. Supreme Court on down. Um, whether he gets elected or not, we need that Senate. Because if we get a Democrat in and we have Mitch McConnell in charge, holy cow, we need to get McConnell out. And so many other those Republican hacks, they got to go. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think the president-democratic primary would have turned out very different if this what is happening right now happened in January. Um, I think that Bernie Sanders would be the nominee because basically we're having corporate socialism right now, um, and and Bernie would have been able to make the case why we're why are we doing corporate socialism when we should be doing socialism for the people? We should be paying. You know, people should have there should be a, a you know a, a guaranteed income, health insurance, all these other things to shore up the people of this country who are the drivers of the economy. The consumers drive this economy, not American Airlines. And, you know, that's who we should be bailing out now. So I think this, it's fascinating, the timing. Nobody knows for sure, but I think the debate, Democratic debate would have been different. Um, all these things that, that they're basically doing that are socialist measures to shore up corporations, they'd already been doing with farmers and some others. But now they're doing it across vast industries. It's unbelievable how hypocritical they are. It, oh, it is. It's so hypocritical. We see it on the local level as well, too. Whenever there's a need that somehow, well, let me rewrite it. Whenever you want money for poor people or for poor neighborhoods or struggling neighborhoods or struggling workers, we're broke. We have no money. But as soon as you want something like for your buddies or your pals, Oh, there's an abundance of money. So Donald Trump is yeah, right. There's a hundred million dollars for you. Yeah. 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 So Donald Trump right now, one trillion dollars. He's gonna. I'm laughing and I'm thinking he's more socialist than Bernie at the moment. Yep. Because he's protecting himself. Yep. That's who he's mainly looking out for. Right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Tracy Bain from the Chicago Reader. One more time, give the uh, website where people can go to if they want to make contributions or they want to learn more about the Reader. Go ahead. ChicagoReader.com slash donate. It's simple, and uh, we're going to bring you on every week, Tracy, to make this appeal. <laughs> and plus, you're Definitely. fired up. All right, very. thank you very much, Tracy. You <laughs> take you. care. Bye-bye. That's Tracy Bay. Bye -bye. We'll be right back after this.
When you lose a loved one whose wishes were to be cremated, Chicagoland Cremation Options provides your family a dignified and affordable cremation service. Chicagoland Cremation Options helps you bypass the expensive overhead of a funeral home or cemetery by streamlining the cremation directly. It saves you sometimes thousands of dollars. Chicagoland Cremation Options Crematory, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. You can find them at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. It's Chicagoland's adult entertainment playground. It's the world-famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world-famous Admiral Theater, open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. We're back here on the Ben Jarofsky Show in my house overlooking the beautiful L-Track and the beautiful alley. Nobody is uh, wandering through smoking reefer. It's a rainy day, D. Yeah, it's, I know. It's uh, kept people from wandering through our alley. Uh, yes, we are not at the Chicago Sun-Times, as you know. We're doing this remote. Yeah, that's what it is, the rain. That's why no one's back there behind the alley. <laughs> not like the virus thing going on. No, the rain. It's, it's just the rain, yeah. It's not the virus. Uh, Levante Stewart with us, in uh, community activist, political activist from the south side of Chicago, frequent guest on our show. Welcome to the show, Levante. Hey, Ben. Hey, Dennis. Good to talk to you guys. Yeah, my uh, my alley is pretty empty too. <laughs> Alleys all yeah, over I Chicago are empty. <laughs> I just don't blame the rain because you know it was pretty active the last couple of nights. Okay, so it's the rain. All right, it's not the coronavirus. It's the rain. No, I'm not joking when I say this, Levante. Uh, th- well, I'm overlooking this alley. And this is where I do almost all my writing, looking out this window on the alley. And I've seen over the last, I don't know, 20 years, I've been up here, however long it's been. I've been living in this house since the 80s, actually. I've seen so many different generations of youngsters smoking reefer in the back alley. You know what I mean? And they huddle around my garbage can, you know, like looking around. And one time they accidentally set the garbage can on fire. That's a whole lot. Oh, uh, I know. It's a terrible story. Yeah, well, you know, hey, uh, in seriousness, you know, I mean, you try to use a little light humor if, if there's a little space to do so. But, I mean, yeah, social distancing. So you probably won't see too many people kind of you know, passing the blunt right now. (laughs) Yeah, you won't see them passing the blunt. All right. um, There's so much to talk about, Levante. The coronavirus uh, is at the top of the list. We've been talking about that all day. We also had an election yesterday. Let's talk about that. Uh, You've been following politics for a while. We had an election. Kim Fox was victorious. Uh, Joe Biden was victorious in the state for the, in the primary. Um, And, uh, uh, so what's your general thoughts? Were you pleased with Kim Fox's race? Yeah, I was pretty pleased with uh, Kim Fox. Definitely a supporter. I think we have to give her uh, another term. Um, you know, we don't have to go into great depth, but the juicy smoothie story, <laughs> I think that just took too much of center stage and wasted too much of our precious attention uh, in Chicago to really look at what Kim is doing or, you know, State Attorney Fox is doing. And to me, so far, that first term has been tremendous. She's been helping to 
takes and blows at the system where it's institutional racism that we talk about, right? And these disparities and other things that it is. Sometimes it's classism, right? It's not always race. It's class as well. So those who have less stay in the system longer. And Kim recognizes that, right? And that we have to have separate thinking in how we deal with people through the system. And then ultimately, what kind of system do we want to have then? What's a just system? You know, I like to see a system that has mercy. You know, I, I, I call myself a spiritual person. I'd rather deal with a merciful God than a just God if we start being really, you know, honest. So, uh, you know, I just think Kim is doing a great job. She's got a wonderful team around her, uh, an expansive support network. You know, let's get this lady some room and let her and let her roll and see what she does. Yeah, I know. And in the terms of uh, up is down, is down is up, uh, Donald Trump, was trying to position himself uh, as the merciful, I'm going to use your uh, word, I have it in quotes definitely with Donald Trump, a reformer on criminal justice issues. You recall during the Super Bowl, he aired a commercial where he was extolling his virtues as a reformer of uh, unfair criminal justice uh, matters. And uh, at the same time, uh, Donald Trump was sort of connected to the anti-Kim Fox movement. So the irony is at the very time that Donald Trump was trying to present himself to voters, especially black voters, as a criminal justice reformer, he was part of a movement that was trying to punish a woman who was actually, you know, bringing into existence criminal justice. I find it a little uh, disconcerting sometimes, Levante, to deal with these contradictions. Well, you know, it's it's a really weird thing, and I don't want to get into too much Trumpyism, as as dear Rod has has coined it. Uh, but <laughs> you know, I don't know. A lot of people don't like to speak openly. Ben, you you know, you're starting to really know me. I like to speak candidly, whether it does you know, personal damage or not, who cares? I'm going to speak my mind. Uh, black people, Trump is very complex to black people, right? Because we don't have a, uh, he's not a foreigner. There's, as far as I can remember as a kid, Trump has had this, you know, kind of weird relationship with the black community and black culture. Um, so it's, and, and one thing, uh, you know, about that is sometimes I don't think Trump is, I don't know about Trump, man. I don't necessarily think he's just full-blown, you know, a racist. I just think sometimes he's just a, you know, a numbskull. You know, it just it, there's no thought to some some of the processes. So I think he doesn't really recognize that conflict, inherent conflict that he has in his own contradictions of how he, what he says, what he believes, what he actually does. But it's just a really weird dude. But uh, yeah, I get the point of it. Uh, well, I whether he's a conscious racist or not, I think that he is aware of the fact that if he pushes certain issues, he'll get voters to turn out for him. He'll play on certain right. fears that people have, certain biases. We used to have this discussion all the time uh, back in the 80s. Uh, Levante about well is Ed Verdoliak the alderman of the 10th ward actually a racist or is he just using racism as a way to get power and ultimately what difference does it make you know what I'm saying right. I mean what difference yeah. does it make uh, yeah at the end of the day you know uh, it doesn't matter if you dapping me up and you know giving me a pound and saying my brother and then you putting diving a knife deeper in my back or in my pocket or my wallet, then, yeah, <laughs> there's still an issue. 
Levante, let me ask you this. Uh, I haven't, I haven't had, had this conversation today. We had a lot of it yesterday. In retrospect, are you glad that Illinois had the primary yesterday, or do you wish they had delayed it? Nah, I think Illinois pretty much kind of made up his mind where it was with people. I did notice uh, the decrease in political activity in terms of outreach in the street. Uh, it was really weird in a way because, I, you know, in some instance, maybe I wish there was a little more time. Uh, and we had some time to put attention on it because I didn't even honestly know, and, and nobody laughed at me, I didn't know that Senator Iris Martinez was even running uh, for clerk. <laughs> Iris Martinez? No. <laughs> That's a called a down-ballot race. Yeah. Listen, I, I noticed a couple of yard signs when I was riding, and then I'm thinking, it really didn't dawn on me like, why am I seeing Iris's signs on the southeast side? I know Iris, you know, from my time working in the Senate for for Kwame, but uh, and she's she's really, you know, a lovely person, very very smart. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a strong supporter, and, and so uh, you know, I would that would have been a, a a good one for me to watch between her and and Boykin as I made my decision down the road. So then I was looking at it in front of me on my ballot and I'm like, what in the hockey sticks? <laughs> and so I had a, a conflict right in front of the ballot machine. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I like both of them. I think both of them would do well and, and I cast my vote. And, and uh, you know, I finally, finally got a chance to get the results after a round trip to Milwaukee last night and saw that she won. Yeah. So an upset, I'm, I'm assuming we're calling this. All right. It, it, well, let's put it this way. And let's be real about this. There's so much going on in the world right now, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, Here I am broadcasting, overlooking my beautiful alley because coronavirus has essentially shut down the economy and people are stay quarantined to their homes and we're being advised not to go into the office. And so we're testing things out, not going to the Sun-Times in that studio. And uh, businesses are uh, laying off people. Uh, people are worried about how they're going to pay their next rent check. Uh, Donald Trump is being finally prompted into doing something, uh, breaking away from just dwelling on himself uh, for the moment. Uh, and then on, on top of that, the Democrats are dealing with who should be their nominee, Bernie or Biden. When you put it all together, the last thing people are going to be thinking about is clerk of the circuit court. Do you understand what I'm saying, Levante? I absolutely understand what you're saying. That said, it's an important position. I say, I'm just telling you, it, it's a very important position from a criminal justice standpoint because that, that's the office, that's a repository for all the, the lawsuits and uh, legal documents and legal papers. You want it in an, to be kept in an orderly fashion uh, so that people can get access to the documents they need to navigate the system. And if it's right now, it's a little chaotic and a little dysfunctional. So it's a very yeah. important position. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Man, I, I hope and I have full confidence that uh, uh, Senator Martinez will uh, fully go in there with a vision and understand where we are as a 21st century nation and bring all of those things online, but still also have uh, that ease of accessibility for our seniors and people who maybe are not as tech literate or savvy. Uh, so I would love to see that once this coronavirus lifts, man, I would love to see some kind of a digital outreach going to our seniors 
uh, coming from that office who are impacted in any kind of way. Uh, so I'm hoping she brings some some fresh vibrancy and life to the office and, and bring the right team on board and just kind of listen to some good input from people and communities and experts. And uh, yeah, and it, again, I think we have to kind of <laughs> hang this on everything we say after coronavirus lifts. Yeah after coronavirus. All right. Uh, speaking of after coronavirus, it's pretty clear that Joe Biden will be the, the nominee. Uh, he won three states Uncle yesterday. Joe. Joe Biden, Uncle Joe, as you call him, uh, will be the nominee. Uh, where, what do you want to hear from Joe Biden for your community? Uh, what do you think Joe Biden should be stressing, articulating, and emphasizing uh, as we move forward? Well, I mean, I if he's a smart man, he'll take some of those things that could have been and should have been greater wins under the Obama administration and explore those even greater. So, you know, real and significant investment in communities, not just, you know, of course, communities, all of the words that we can preface on that, right? But all of these communities that are hard hit now, especially now after this, Whoever goes into that office, we need to see a really strong president that can help rebuild the country because, you know, I'm wondering if we haven't seen the social likes of what's happening since, like, what, maybe turn of the century? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, you know, World War One kind of, you know, period where we had all of these things, these crises kind of happening at once and watching the, the country kind of rebound from the Depression and all of those things. You know, you just got to wonder how far is corona going to, going to take us because right now everybody's prepared for two weeks but i hear from a lot of people that are prepared for a couple of months for this um so we need somebody who's really truly committed to investing putting money on the ground and you know we hear that over and over and i've been hearing that and i'm 44 years old what does that really mean because i haven't really seen the impact of investing in communities when i ride up and down the streets in my south shore there's still a lot of vacant commercial spaces still a lot of empty residential homes that people could be owning, renting, living in. We shouldn't even have, you know, the level of homelessness that we have in Chicago with the available housing stock. So I want to see something real that's coming down the pipe nationally, state, and local. You know, the the concern just about uh, three or four weeks ago that the Democrats can't go too far left. Bernie is pushing them too far left. The irony uh, of Levante of what... Donald Trump is proposing at the moment uh, like a ma- major bailout for some of the industries that are really like the airlines industry that's uh, on the ropes because of coronavirus, p- injecting one trillion in the economy is the headline in the paper, talking about sending tr- ch- checks to people. It's 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 remarkable how much has changed just uh, <laughs> in a matter of three weeks. I'm urging the Democrats not to chicken out, but to stand up for supposedly the values that they have which is to look out for people who do not have the system looking out for them, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we it, it, there's no doubt about it that the country needs some kind of infusion. I mean, I'm not a historian. I'm not uh, an expert in terms of, you know, uh, economics. I'm a hobbyist, if you will. Or, uh, But... I mean, come on, Ben, something has got to happen. Some money has got to be infused in some way, but how do we do it in a responsible way that really lifts everybody and, and kind of lifts the country, you know, kind of back up on its hunches where it needs so that motor can kind of kick back in and life can 
get back to normal again once we're past the coronavirus. Yeah. But yeah, we need something in between to sustain people. And and you know, I'm dealing with it at, on a nonprofit level, right? Uh, I'm working on that now. How we're dealing with the impact we've we've done well for trying to follow what's happening in the workforce, which is trying to retain workers and sustain levels of pay so that people can support their families and take care of their households. But there's still been, you know, some some negative impact in terms of a couple of people uh, either who've had hours shaved or, you know, they can't work right now at all, especially those who their work depends more on working directly with children who we can't serve, we can't have in the building right now. So all we can focus on is more administrative tasks, you know, other things that can be done remotely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, an organization like ours, though, uh, we may not necessarily need an infusion of money because our, our financial model is kind of built differently in terms of revenue expenses, where those revenues come from, how they're generated, et cetera. But the restaurants, man, we love to eat. My family, we love to eat. And not being able to go out and eat, that hurts. Like, man, it, it almost feels like being dumped by a girlfriend that you really love, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I feel sorry for the, the, the workers, man. You know, we got out and ate on Friday, the last day we could go shout out to, uh, what was that, TGIF? Mm-hmm. So, wife, we took it out and, you know, had a good meal, man. Tipped really well because we knew this was the last day since the governor had announced they were closing restaurants. So, you know, People like that, they need this infusion of cash, Ben, right, to kind of re- to replace that lag in consumerism uh, that they're missing from foot tra- traffic, the opportunity cost, as we say, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, somehow we need that. I-, I don't care how it comes, right? I don't care whose principles is built on. Show us the money. <laughs> <laughs> Show us the money, indeed. Levante Stewart, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. We'll be talking to you soon down the road, all right? All right, Ben. Thanks for having me. Dr. D, take care, fellas. Take care. That's Levante Stewart. We'll be right back after this. It's the butter cow, which has nine hearts to represent the nine essential nutrients in milk. That's right. It's made entirely out of butter. And, you know, it's a state fair tradition since at least 1922. Once a month, the political know-it-alls come on my show and show how much they know. The political know-it-alls being, of course, Jacob Kaplan, executive director of the Cook County Democratic Party, and young Dan, Dan Pogoshelsky. He'll marry you if he won't give you political advice. Uh, He does weddings, but he's not going to do weddings today. We don't even have the bit to play here. Uh, We're, again, doing this show as a remote from my attic workroom overlooking the alley and here comes a brown line uh, right down the train and I'm looking, yep, there it goes, it's slowing up there's no one on that train alright, everybody's yeah. uh, hanging out in their home uh, f- for uh, just trying to keep some social distance, alright Dan and uh, Jacob, welcome to the show welcome to a new age uh, in uh, podcasting, I'm looking at you on a screen here, we're doing this through uh, Facebook, uh, thank you Mark Zuckerberg Yesterday was the Illinois primary, of course, Democratic primary, and lots to go through. Uh, let's start with, well, you know what? I didn't even tell you guys I was going to start with this one. Uh, Jacob, we'll start okay. with you. The turnout. Uh-oh. The turnout yeah. yesterday, and the issue is whether we should have had uh, the election at all. I've been all over the map on this one, uh, Jacob Kaplan, yesterday. I was, the breeze blowing this way and that way. Ultimately, I decided I just wanted to get this election over with. Let's get it over with. And I think we're probably better off for having done it that way. What's your thoughts about this? Should we have had an election yesterday? I tend to agree we should have. I think it was a really tough call by the governor. But I think if, you know, canceling it 
you know, raises legal questions. I know they did it in Ohio. I know it's a public health crisis, but I don't know. I mean, again, as, I, as I've been quoted before, if this was happening, uh, if our election was next Tuesday, I don't think there's any way we could have it. It would be postponed. But to postpone this one so last minute with so many mail-in votes and early votes already in, I think would have been very troubling. So I think it's better that we just had it. And the turnout, what was the turnout roughly? I saw the paper in the city of Chicago. I think I saw 30%. Is that about right? Yeah, it's going to hit about 30%. So I think we're going to end up quite a bit lower than the 2016 primary, which if you had asked me a month ago, I thought we'd be at 2016 or above level. So that's quite a big drop off from the last major contested presidential primary. Dan, you go uh, door-to-door for candidates on the Northwest side. Uh, were people a little more cautious about answering the door with the coronavirus? or people a little more fearful about interacting with people like, uh, go, you know, operatives going door-to-door? We, we stopped, um, and many of the campaigns I knew stopped Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Had, by the time it got really bad, had already stopped. Um, I, I did want to say going back to the question that you had for, for young Jacob, uh, I thought I had a kind of a, a novel, a, a novel, uh, approach to it, which would have been to go on with the election, but have had the option to have a mail-in ballot. So if there for if you had any lines, you mean like, Whoa, you don't have the same line, simply try, give us an ID and you could take this mail-in ballot and be on your merry way. Yeah, I the idea. It would have had to obviously had the kinks worked out, and there wasn't a lot of time. But it might have been the optimal solution, and had if especially if you had said, make sure that these ballots are mailed in by Wednesday at noon or Wednesday close of business and postmarked by then, and uh, that way we could have had where some of these photos and images where people are in lines uh, wouldn't have happened. That's... I agree, though. I, I think it was just uh, this came up so quickly that I don't think there's any way the election authorities could have implemented that fast enough. I think that's just the fact. They weren't prepared for it. So, Jacob, how long <laughs> before we just moved to ballot uh, to uh, mail-in elections completely? To... Well, I, I think this is going to push most, especially if we're still dealing with the crisis in November. Hopefully, it's lessened by then. But you know, if it's still an issue. Uh, I think in November, there's going to be a big push nationwide to move to mail-in voting. I mean, you're already seeing this. I mean, Oregon, Washington, I think Colorado now do all of their elections by mail. I think this is going to push everywhere to do it, at least for November. And we do it in November, fine. I think it means probably the end of in-person polling places, potentially, for the future, which I know there's a, uh, some people like the idea of walking to your neighborhood polling place. And it's kind of as a, you know, historically, it's a it's an experience, but I'm not sure that it's better than uh, voting by mail, which you can safely do from your home under any um, one, one of the questions I had was with mail-in voting, um, have there not been issues where people have, have tampered with them? Was in the North Carolina Republican election, was there not an issue with, with harvesting? And so that's one of the things that I'd be worried about. It's well, a worry. I mean, but, you know, there's there's tam- there can be tampering in any situation, but I mean, and mail-in it's much harder to do though. Well, I I, I got to tell you this, and, th- and this is for a conversation yeah. for further down the road. Obviously, as we move toward November, 
I'm really worried about Donald Trump trying to steal this election on like three or four different fronts. If we move to a, just a total mail-in, I'm with Dan. I'm, I'm suddenly like thinking of every single way that Donald Trump and the Republicans can steal this election. Not just the usual ones like voter suppression, you know, making it more difficult for Democrats to vote, that kind of thing. Uh, kicking people off the voting rolls, that kind of thing. The traditional Republican ways of, of, of winning an election because Lord knows they can't win just through a straight majority vote. But you go to a mail, uh, mail vote, I have to see how it works, Jacob, before I'm totally confident. I, I have some of Dan's concerns just off the bat. How do you keep people from voting and and then just be like, here, I got it, like at a retirement home, for example, and just like literally voting for someone and putting in the, the ballot. Like, it, it'd be hard to, to see some of these irregularities. That's my worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, but there's signature matches that are done and all that. So it's, but it's a concern. I agree. Yeah, for sure. We'll have to be talking through. And I agree with you, Ben. I think we have to be worried, especially in a crisis situation of what Trump is going to do. Yeah. Who knows? All right, let's take it down the list, some of the big races in Illinois that went uh, from yesterday. We'll start with the obvious one. We talk about it all day. Kim Fox was victorious in her run for re-election despite Smollettgate, despite uh, $10 million pumped into the Bill Conway campaign by Bill Conway's father. Lots of commercials were aired. Jacob, uh, what are your thoughts about the Kim Fox victory? I'm ecstatic, and I think it's a great victory for criminal justice reform. It's a great victory for the party, because that was the top of our ticket, uh, essentially, at the Cook County Democratic Party. But, I mean, I, I was always pretty confident that Kim could pull this off. I did not think she would pull it off with the landslide that she ended up with, but maybe hitting over 50% in a four-person race. So I think it just goes to show that, number one, money isn't everything, which is great to see. And number two, that as much as the media wanted to pump Smolakade as the issue that everybody cared about more than anything else, I think voters, even a lot of voters in the suburbs and other places, they like what Kim's been doing on criminal justice reform. They didn't want to get rid of her just because of that one scandal. So I'm ecstatic. I I want to segue on uh, Jacob's comment that money can't buy you everything. (laughs) Because apparently, aside from uh, winning the primary in American Samoa, it can also buy you, (laughs) if you're a a Republican, the primary in the U.S. 14th Congressional District, where serial loser... Jim Oberweiss <laughs> finally won the Republican primary, 13,000 votes, woohoo, right? But it was 25% of the people that showed up. And so he will be facing off against uh, Lauren Underwood in the fall. Are you concerned about that? Are you worried about that? Um, I think if I were Lauren Underwood, I think Jim Oberweiss would be out of all of these opponents, the dream opponent. I mean, you have, Let's let's remember some of the the zingers this man had. Mm-hmm. A person who had commercials that were, if you're looking at the climate today, divisive, offensive, racist. Um, this is the kind of opponent that you can caricature, who really would serve to highlight your strong points if you're a Democrat. Jacob, do you uh, look forward to him running against Lauren Underwood? Do you think do you agree I do. with Dan? I, I, I think when you look at that field, I think both for that district and for the 6th Congressional District, where Jeannie Ives is going to be facing off against uh, Sean Kasten, I think the Democrats could not have asked for two better uh, <laughs> better uh, uh, opponents. And I think the Republicans are just furious that those two won those primaries, from what I hear, you know, in, in the Republican establishment. Because I don't see, you know, you're with Donald Trump on the ballot, how having the most extreme right-wing Republicans in 
suburban, you know, Chicago, and we've seen these suburban areas trending blue. I don't see how, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm still concerned that, that Lauren and uh, Sean win, but I think this made it a lot easier, <laughs> honestly. Uh, Marie Newman's vic- victory in the third congressional. Uh, that caught a lot of people off guard from outside of Chicago. Uh, the, a lot of the, the mm-hmm. headlines that are appearing, you know, in the national press were like, a long time ago, coming defeated. Uh, you know, like they were surprised by it. Were you surprised by it, Dan? No. I wasn't surprised by it in the slightest. Um, I think one of the reasons why people were wondering if it would happen was because of the entry of two other primary opponents. In particular, Rush Darwish, um, who um, obviously had a base of support in the significant Arab American community that's in the southwest suburbs. Um, his vote total is around almost 6,000, um, especially because there was another Arab American that was running in some of the areas that were over that. So you had where there'd be a real push. Um, but even that wasn't enough to, to stop the Marie Newman train. And she is. Uh, unless there's uh, some some kind of crazy um, flood of ballots, which people would question, um, <laughs> that are uncounted coming out of Chicago, uh, she will be the next congressman. Yeah, she's winning, but winning by 2,300 votes right now. Uh, yeah, 2,400 actually over Lipinski. So I think she has this solidly in the bag. Um, I was a little surprised. I like Dan mentioned. I was I thought the four person race would uh, potentially doom her chances a bit. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, people just, you know, Democrats that vote in Democratic primaries are a lot more, you know, liberal, especially on issues of choice nowadays. And, you know, Dan Lipinski is one of the last, was one of the last dinosaurs on social issues. And his time was limited, like we saw in the last uh, yeah. round. I, I think it was not only that it was, he, he, that he's anti-choice. I want to highlight that it's, you know, he wasn't just anti-choice. He was also conservative when it came to financial measures. And how, in, in this day and age, somebody that was against Obamacare, I mean, when you have, well, he's a Democrat in which field, right? He had really not, it wasn't just that he was anti-choice. It's a district which had a significant Latino population. He's someone who would come out against sanctuary cities, which definitely energized other folks. So I just wanted to highlight that that's certainly one of the pillars of what it means to be a Democrat, especially in our, in, in our area. But he had almost no base of support other than the fact that he had a last name, which was long tied into the Democratic establishment. Absolutely. And I, I like to point this out. I've had Marie Newman on the show several times. The 3rd Congressional District went for Bernie Sanders in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. I I did not see what it went uh, in this past primary. We're going to get into the presidential primary. But on pocketbook issues, it's a left-of-center district in in terms of the Democratic primary. And Dan Lipinski, as a conservative, does not fit in well with most voters in that area. Now, they may not be plugged into a congressional race. They may, as as you were suggesting, uh, Dan, have a the notion, you know, the, the memory of the Lipinski name. And so sometimes voters will just instinctively vote for the name that they know. Uh, that may have happened with Iris Martinez winning in the uh, circuit court race. We'll get into that one as, as well. So 
yeah, Dan Lipinski was out of tune, I thought, with voters in the 3rd Congressional District on more issues than just choice. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I saw that one as well. Um, okay. Uh, and uh, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about the race. Ed Burke, committeeman Ed Burke, 14th Ward, longtime Democratic committeeman. Jacob, is he about to lose this race? I think so. Uh, I don't want to say for sure. There's still a couple of precincts that have not reported yet. But uh, as of right now, Aaron Ortiz is up ahead of him by 400 votes. So I don't see how two precincts being out would change that enough to make a difference, uh, unless they're like amazing precincts for Burke. Uh, but it, even in, with that, I think I think Aaron's going to pull this off. So it's a big deal. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> you know to be somebody who's been. I know he's obviously under uh, indictment now and that sure played a big role, but he still won for Alderman when he was under, you know, all this cloud. So beating him for committeeman, he's been a committeeman since 1969 is uh, pretty outstanding. Yeah. I got to say, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a result. <laughs> and we're happy about it at the party because, you know, we tried as soon as everything happened uh, with Burke, we tried everything we could under our bylaws legally to uh, remove him from the party and from all the committees he served on, but he was still legally elected. So we couldn't, completely toss him out but now he'll be gone yeah. so i think it's good it's good for the party <laughs> it's good for the democratic party yes indeed all right one last election i'm going to ask you about then we're going to take off for the day iris martinez uh caught me by surprise when she run one for circuit uh clerk of the circuit court were you surprised young daniel um she i i hadn't expected her to um to win, but I wasn't surprised. And I say that because if there's one one strong motif that the voters really delivered, I believe when you look at and analyze the down-ballot races, the Democratic electorate has a lot of women who are dissatisfied with the lack of female representation and made their voices known. And you saw this in race after race, I believe. And so let's look at the, the field. You had uh, the people that were running. You had Richard Boykin, you had Iris Martinez, you had Michael Carbonargi, and you had Jacob Meister. So Iris was the only female candidate, somebody who had um, been elected before, had served in the Senate in leadership. So therefore, when you look at that outcome, that's not surprising because it's an outcome that we saw driving the elections in 2018. Mm. Yeah, I would, uh, I would echo that as well. I, I think in a race where nobody really knows anybody, I mean, this is such a down-ballot race. Even, I mean, us political nerds know what the clerk of the circuit court is, but most voters, I mean, they could tell you Dorothy Brown's name, but they probably couldn't tell you what the office was that she held. Yeah. So I think when you have an open seat in an office like that with four candidates, and like Dan said, being the only woman and being a Latina, and Latina names have been doing excellent countywide for the last two or three cycles, uh, I think that was just, that was the deal. And I think also Jacob Meister having him in the race probably took some votes away from Kevin Argy. So at the bottom line is uh, Iris uh, won this solidly. And I wasn't, I, w I wish Mike had won because that was, Kevin Argy was of course our endorsed candidate, but uh, you know, it's not, I mean, again, it's, uh, it's not terribly surprising to me what happened here. When you talk about Latina names doing well in the county, let's close with that. Uh, which, what are some of the candidates you're alluding to, Jacob? So I'm saying, uh, especially this is in judicial races, which are other also races where nobody knows anybody's name. So just this time around, we had 
Laura Ayala Gonzalez winning countywide, our party endorsed candidate, and Teresa Molina, you know, beating people with Irish names. So, and we saw this, I think, two or four years ago, there was a, a candidate for judge against one of our candidates, uh, I believe it was another Laura, I'm blanking on her last name. She didn't spend one dime, just put her name on the ballot and won. And our <laughs> so, you know, for whatever reason, yeah. the voters of Cook County really like Latina. It's, it's a thing. So it, those names have done incredibly well the last three or four cycles. Dan, do you see the so. day coming uh, when Latino names will have an advantage over Irish names on the ballot? Well, I think it's important for Jacob, to, as Jacob had mentioned, um, it's Latina names, right? So you have where um, we have um, we have an underrepresentation of Latinas, right? And so what it is is that folks are trying to both go against some of the the, the patriarchal nature that you see in uh, our politics, and as well as making sure that we have Latino representation. And so I think that's one of the key things that Jacob alluded to. So it's not just Oh, it's just a Latino last name. No, it's the fact that it's um, uh, a female Latina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that's a good point. By the way, I just want to say something. There are some advantages uh, to doing a podcast uh, from your house uh, as opposed to doing it from the studio, particularly uh, if my wife is home. Young Dennis is now eating a sandwich. My wife snuck up here, mm. and he's, oh, I never <laughs> see the guy so happy. Oh, oh, it's nice. so good, man. <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> he's like, God dang, I'm going to do this show from here more often. What is that, peanut butter? Is that and pe- jelly. Oh, my God. The guy, I'll tell you something about Dennis. He <laughs> loves peanut butter and jelly, ladies and gentlemen. All right, it's an Alton classic. I want to thank you guys for putting up with us today. Uh, we've been working through uh, the ups and the downs of doing a podcast from the attic, overlooking the alley, overlooking the brown line. I want to thank the political know-it-alls, uh, Jacob Kaplan and Dan Pogoshels. They've been coming on this show. Well, Jacob Kaplan, from the moment I've had a microphone in front of my face, hey, Jacob, you're coming on my show. Uh, thank you yep. guys very much for putting up with us, and uh, we'll have you on. Hey, we're going to be doing this show throughout this crisis. We're going to talk in politics throughout this crisis. I just saw that Dennis just put this in front of me in news break. Uh, Bernie Sanders is uh, assessing his campaign in the wake of three decisive wins by Biden on Tuesday. We'll close down by getting your thoughts, Jacob. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I am voted for Bernie. Everybody knows this. I welcome Bernie in the race. I feel he's done a great job of promoting issues that the Democratic, my beloved Democrats, run away from. I'm always mad at my Democratic Party. I'm always mad at the moderates in the Democratic Party, Jacob. You know this. You know me for a long time. Because they run away from what I believe are the core values that the Democrats should represent. And I really appreciate Bernie Sanders for putting on a front street. And now we're at this crisis. Even Donald Trump and the Republicans are sounding like Bernie Sanders in terms of talking about pumping money to people who desperately need I wish they had been there for the last four years. But what's your assessment of Bernie's uh, campaign uh, in this cycle, Jacob? I mean, I think he's done a great job. I'm glad he ran, and I'm glad that he was a voice and helped push Biden and others to the left. Um, but at this point, I think the right thing to do is to exit the race, because especially with this crisis going on and everything else in the world, there's, it's mathematically impossible for him to win at this point. He's, mm-hmm. you know, Biden's been winning by such large margins and such important states. So I think it's the right thing to do to wrap it up at this point. You agree, Dan? Uh, 
what I think is that there's an argument to be made for Bernie taking this time to go and continue to educate, right? To make sure that the New Deal isn't a bad word, as it has in some quarters of the Democratic Party. Uh, but Bernie can still do that um, by being a surrogate. There, uh, one of the things that I actually, uh, one of the things that's different in 2020 than in 2016 is that um, despite that both Bernie and Biden are standing up for their issues, they're, they're tireless advocates, you can see that there's a, a mutual respect between the camaraderie. And um, I, I can't, um, I could see where there won't be any problems between the two of them coming together um, and coming to an understanding so that Bernie's priorities are expounded upon as the campaign goes forward. All right, very good, Danny P. Thank you so much, Jacob Kaplan. Also want to thank Levante Stewart, Tracy Bame, and Monroe my Anderson. Man. Yes, Levante Stewart is your man. Uh, and, of course, my man, who uh, is really enjoying that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He's the happiest guy I've ever seen, man. Uh, the doctor, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Danny Podkoshelsky can tell you, back home on Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs>